It's Monday, January 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. First week in office, and Joe Biden has signed a number of executive orders and also has given a support to two major bills, a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill and an immigration bill with a pathway to citizenship for many immigrants. In a sign of what to expect for the next few years, we are already seeing opposition from Senate Republicans. Despite controlling the House, Senate, and the White House, the narrow margins will make it tough to pass anything. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for this and what to expect from Trump's second impeachment trial. Next, we unfortunately have very little control over what we see in our social media feeds. It is mostly left to the algorithms that dictate how and what is featured first. Gone are the days of posts in chronological order. Now, we mostly see content that the system thinks we want to see, and that could push us further into our own bubbles, which can lead to voices of misinformation being amplified. Joanna Stern, senior personal tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for some ideas on how we can take charge of our own social media again. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You have a partner in the White House, Vice President Harris and me, partner you can trust, who will listen, who will work to get you what you need. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Joe Biden was sworn into office last week, got started right away, had a flurry of executive orders and proposing some new bills. First up was the economy. You know, the Biden team wants a $1.9 trillion economic package. They want $1,400 stimulus payments to Americans. Democrats would need 10 Republicans to help pass this. And uh, there's some early opposition already. Uh, you know, a lot of senators are saying basically, you know, it's too soon after the $900 billion package we just passed. That's right. We had a great story this weekend from Sahil, my coworker, looking at how some of these moderate Republicans, the Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins and Mitt Romney, uh, who you would need to pass a big bipartisan piece of legislation, they're not on board yet, saying that they just passed one, the ink has barely dried on the one that was passed over the winter, and that they think it needs a little more time to wait and see what America's needs are before passing another round. Now, Biden campaigned on more stimulus checks, $1,400 after the $600 that went out in January. And he's also said that they need more money to pay for vaccine distribution, that currently the U.S. doesn't have enough funds, especially at the state level, to pay for this distribution. Uh, but I think at this point, any type of big sweeping and anything with a stimulus check just doesn't have the bipartisan yeah. support it would need to pass. Yeah, Mitt Romney, for his part, said, you know, I think the problem is COVID. We need to figure that out. And then the economy is going to come back on its own. So I, I think a lot of them are going to be taking that posture. But we're, you know, we're also hearing that the Biden team wants to spend some political capital on this, engaging with lawmakers, hoping to convince them along this side. To my knowledge, that's not something we saw with the Trump administration, at least in the latter half. It wasn't really something we saw with the Trump administration for four years. I mean, there were times when Congress was doing things and Trump's folks got involved, but not the way we're seeing the Biden administration sort of a return to normalcy where the president says, here's my top priority, go make it happen, and tells his staff to really engage in the process, to push for things, to get his proposals in front of lawmakers, to make the case 
to lawmakers to enact this type of legislation. So it is a departure from what we've seen. And I really think that anyone who um, was watching closely these last four years, especially early on when Republicans controlled both chambers of Congress and the White House and still couldn't get anything done, people who sort of study legislative politics really sort of walked away saying, you need the president. You need the president to really invest that capital. And I think we see Biden trying to, to do that instead of the way Trump did. So they have two options with something so big. You either renegotiate the bill, make everybody kind of happy or as happy as can be, or you can do reconciliation when it comes to this bill. I think Senator Bernie Sanders has already signaled that Senate Democrats might want to go that route. So this is like a parliamentary procedure that you can skip the 60 vote um, threshold and pass a bill with just 50 votes. You might remember Republicans did this a couple of years ago to pass the tax cut bill that they had as a top priority. You could only do it once a year. So there's oh, sort wow. of a limit. <laughs> um, so so pick your one time because that's all you've got is just once. But we are starting to hear Democrats say this is such a top priority. This is so important. This is the one time this year they should do it. That is tricky. I did not know that one year rule right there. Uh, the the other big plan so far from the Biden administra- administration is immigration. This is already met with a lot of skepticism. He wants an eight year pathway to citizenship for uh, uh, non immigrants, uh, non citizens. Excuse me. Um, You know, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, these guys were part of the gang of eight who worked in 2013 to pass immigration. They're already signaling that they don't want this to go through. What we're seeing is that Biden sent over a bill to Congress that's sort of his opening offer. And it's everything that he might have wanted. It's a path to citizenship. It's, you know, allowing other types of DACA folks to get permanent status. It's a bunch of those things. And and I think it was done under the assumption that Republicans in, in the Senate were going to tell them no, that they had asked for too much. But instead, I'm sort of taking some of the tactic of President Obama and saying, all right, I'm willing to compromise. Biden decided to just make his opening offer with everything that he could want. It is very unlikely that bill will be passed in any form that it looks like now. But I think we're going to see at least some talks or some negotiations down the road on the topic of immigration. Yeah, I think the the best that they might be able to do uh, where they'd get some uh, broad support, I guess, would be uh, the DACA program. Uh, there's already some senators that have signaled that could be a possibility, but the broad amnesty kind of thing uh, probably won't work. And, and you know, we're all, so we're talking about these two bills already and just how tough this legislation will be to pass despite the Democrats having the House and control of the Senate and the presidency. But these leads are so narrow. You know, in the House, it's 221 to 211 Democrats to Republicans. And in the Senate, it's 50-50 with Kamala Harris being the tie-breaking vote on all that stuff. But right away, you know, it's on to the midterms. You know, what happens right away? We only have two years for something to get passed like that. The midterms change everything usually. History is not on the side uh, of the Democrats in this situation. That's right. If you're a Democrat, you have to be operating under the assumption that in two years you will no longer control the House, the Senate and the White House. That uh, at best in two years you'll control the White House and one other chamber, but that they could lose both. And I think that's part of the decision making that's going in to things like do you use budget reconciliation? And in the Senate, do you get rid of the filibuster? Um, There's folks who think it's a great idea. They could pass a lot more stuff if they got rid of the filibuster right now. But also know that 
this all could flip in a few short years and then Republicans would be able to do whatever they wanted without the filibuster. So there's a lot of this calculations going on in the halls of Congress about how to proceed. And uh, we're in a crisis. So sometimes in a crisis, it's hard to go do some of the things that you've wanted to do for a long time because the crisis is what takes away all the sort of energy and attention in the room. But you're right, a great piece by my colleague, Alex Seitzwald, looking at just how narrow this is and just how short-lived this majority could be. And what happens to President Trump in the next two years? What happens to the Republican Party over the next two years? How do they change? Do they change? You know, these are a lot of questions uh, that are going to be answered, but, you know, we will know at those midterms. And the last thing, Ginger, for this week, uh, impeachment part two. Trump's second impeachment trial is slated to start on February 8th. Nancy Pelosi is going to be sending the article of impeachment over to the Senate on Monday. What are we expecting here? They they need two thirds a majority to convict the president. And, you know, he's already out of office. <laughs> you know, what are we going to look at here? I think it's still going to be a really tall order, if not near impossible to get the votes needed to convict the former president on this impeachment trial. There are folks who may think that it's a good idea because the Republican Party could get rid of him and then he couldn't run for office again and they could try to move on without him. But we're going to see a trial, as you said, starting February 8th. There's going to be a case presented by the House. The president has started the former president to assemble something of a defense. So expect to see, you know, real fireworks on the Senate floor again. And this isn't some phone call that happened in the Oval Office that we then got reports about. This is something that these lawmakers lived through. Um, This is that they saw. So that's really, I think, going to shape and make this a lot different than the last impeachment trial. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. These tools were really in this constant fight with these robots and these computers that are saying, hey, more, look, look at this, look at this, you're going to like this, you're going to want to share this, you're going to want to comment on this, versus... Uh, Maybe there's a feed here of stuff that, like, you might be interested in. Joining us now is Joanna Stern, senior personal tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Joanna. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about social media and the algorithms. It really controls everything that we see on all of these social media platforms. It's really hard to control. We almost have no control over it. And you wrote an article just kind of looking into certain things that maybe we can go back to, although that could be hard. And you kind of pinpoint that around 2016 is when we lost control. Before that, you can go on your uh, Twitter or Instagram or something and see things in chronological order. But that was taken away in lieu of these algorithms uh, pushing you to see more of what these programs want you to see. So, Joanna, tell us a little bit about that. In around 2009, Facebook moved to an algorithmic feed. That means that they took away or they didn't make the default any longer the ability to see all of our posts in chronological order. So if a friend posted and then another friend posted and another friend posted, we used to see those all in order. They moved to a a system where they would show us the things that they thought we would be most interested in. And then in 2016, we sort of lost any remaining control we had on these platforms because the other social media platforms, Twitter and Instagram, moved to this algorithmic feed. And so that really meant was that 
all of our social media feeds, we're now really being controlled by what I think of as little robots in the background, picking out the things that we would be most interested in seeing, the things that we would most likely tap or share or heart emoji or cry emoji. Those are the things that were put right smack in front of our faces. And really what it did is it kind of put us more in our bubbles. You know, if it was cooking videos that you want to see or even some of this more extreme stuff, these QAnon videos going down those rabbit holes, it really just amplified all of that stuff. That's what the system thought you wanted to see. And it was just going to push more of that to you. They want you to be engaging with what you see and they want you to keep engaging with that. And they want you to spend more time. Right. And we want to spend more time. We have our own control here of whether we use social media or not. We have control over our hands. We have control over our eyeballs. We can make those decisions. But these tools, we're really in this constant fight with these robots and these computers that are saying, hey, more, look, look at this. Look at this. You're going to like this. You're going to want to share this. You're going to want to comment on this versus maybe there's a feed here of stuff that like you might be interested in. You might not be interested in maybe every fifth post you're going to be interested in. We don't have that anymore. And so, yes, as we looked at this, as you look at the bigger system, what really got amplified were the things you'd want to see and the things that people would want to share. And it turns out that people like to see or like to share incendiary things. And especially in certain pockets, people like to share conspiracy theories and information that's not true or they believed it was true because it was being shared so much to them you kind of concede very early in in your article that there's not really much we can do. You were just kind of sharing some ideas of maybe things we could go back to, adjust, things like that. So let's run through some of those. There's a new site out there called MeWe, which kind of goes back to that chronological order. There's no algorithms, no ads, and there's positives, but there's also some negatives to that one. I think this one's interesting just because it's marketing itself as the anti-Facebook. Basically, everything that Facebook used to be when we first got it, well, that's what they want it to be now, right? They're thinking, hey, the early days of social media, you see a friend, you see a post, you follow it, and that's all you see. No ads, no cramming of your news feed from things that you think you'll be interested in. We give you the pure feed. And I spoke to the CEO and the founder of the company, and he's really saying we want to eliminate all these other issues. The issue that they have is that actually lots of far-right users now, after fleeing Facebook and Twitter and Parler, are now landing at MeWe, and they're trying to create groups that, uh, you know, trying to, again, bring over some of this misinformation. So they say that they are definitely heavily moderating. What I like the most about the idea is that it flips the business model on its head. I mean, if you really look at the reasons we have these algorithms and these feeds that are so jam-packed with things we want to see is... They want us to click on advertisements, right? Right. These companies make money from the advertisements. That's the business model. So MeWe doesn't use advertising. He says that they are going to only charge premium services or they're going to offer premium services. So you'd pay to use it. You could pay to unlock some emojis or pay to unlock some other features like live journals and other things like that. But he says no advertising. There will not be advertising. Yeah. But that's a tough one, too, because why do people gravitate to some of these other ones? Because they're free. And you kind of give and take, right? That's Uh, right. A lot of people don't necessarily read the terms of service, and I think that's where problems arise after. But you agree to all that. You agree to the ads. You agree to all that for using the service for free. Totally. And there's real benefit to these services being free. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg and many others that work at Facebook and Twitter have said that this is the way that we get a free and open Internet, right? At least we can't be just charging and we can't just be, you know, to those that can actually afford a Twitter or a Facebook. We can't just have that, right? That creates a whole other set of problems. 
So I certainly believe, I certainly don't think that just a paid social media program or app is going to be the solution here. And in the wake of Parler's removal, MeWe has been in touch with all the big tech companies to make sure that their moderation plans are up to snuff so that they don't get kicked off, obviously. But they say it right away that if you do any type of incendiary stuff, inciting violence or whatever, you're going to get kicked off right away. Yes, they were very clear about that when I interviewed them. Another idea that you posed in here is to deprioritize a lot of more destructive and outrageous postings and those kinds of thoughts so that hopefully, you know, that doesn't start spreading around. This has been sort of the heart of the debate between the social media companies and Washington right now. It's like, who should be the arbiter of truth? Who should be deciding what we see and we don't see? But there's a lot of good evidence that when they do look at the algorithms, especially things that are being spread and shared that are either misinformation or conspiracy or in looking to incite violence and some of the more extremist groups, that there are things that they can do. Facebook did this ahead of the election. They're currently doing it now. There are things that they can do with their algorithms to deprioritize that, to not be feeding that in terms of recommended groups or recommended content in people's feeds. And we saw the results of that from Facebook, at least near the election, was that that meant a boost to trusted news sources, less partisan news sources. YouTube has also had some examples of this working. In March 2020, a study out of Berkeley, they found that when YouTube did increase the promotion of conspiracy videos that after they had changed their recommendation algorithms that people were not seeing as many of these conspiracy videos. But that's a difficult one, too, because we want these trusted news sources to be boosted. But then we get into this whole thing that we went through where a lot of these big tech companies were being criticized, saying they were silencing conservative voices Mm -hmm. and alternative media. And then again, you kind of get into this whole thing, you know, who's to say you should deplatform or not boost some of these other sites. So that's kind of another conversation that pops up after that. As I said in the column, there's no easy solution here. And I do not, I do not (laughs) promise to have any of them. I'm just suggesting some things that have been suggested. And another idea that you had was kind of giving people back their control. Let's say, give me the option to go back to a chronological order on my posts and things like that. And you can do that, but it's kind of difficult. Uh, Some places, maybe like Instagram, won't let you at all. But, you know, Facebook, Twitter kind of have some modified things like that. Yeah, I think there's two things in this area of control. One is giving us more control or tools to understand what these algorithms are feeding us. And that's really all about transparency. Why is something in our feed? Why isn't something in our feed? And actually, Facebook has done a lot in this area. You can click on something in your feed, again, buried. But if you click on these the little three dots, usually in your Facebook feed, you can click to something that says, why am I seeing this post? And it will give you a little bit of information of well, we think, you know, you engaged with this person or you joined this group or you read this article and it gives you a little bit of transparency about why you're seeing something. So I think we need more in that realm. The second thing that I think we need more of is more control over what we do see, not why we're seeing it, but what do we see? And I think one of the things that we did lose when we went from that chronological order to an algorithmic order is that we no longer see everything. So that means that if I was following a left-leaning or a right-leaning website, but I didn't engage with it that much, well, then it's not showing in my feed. So I don't even get to see that anymore. So it's important to be able to see some version of the chronological feed. Twitter lets you do that really easily. Facebook lets you do that not so easily. Instagram doesn't let you do that at all. Joanna Stern, senior personal tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.